The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. Now, yesterday, the Israeli Defence Forces raided Nasser Hospital in Gaza. The hospital, which is the largest functioning hospital left in Gaza, is being used to treat patients and shelter more than 1,500 people. Médecins Sans Frontières staff have fled the hospital and were forced to leave their patients behind. It's estimated that the hospital will shortly run out of fuel. Now, joining me to talk about this is freelance journalist just back from Israel, Hannah McCarthy. Hannah, uh, good to have you in the studio. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Pat. Um, what do you make of Israel? They are not for turning and attacking hospitals, claiming there are militants there and there are probably hostages and if not hostages, dead bodies of hostages. What do you say to that? Look, the scenes that we saw today are, are unfortunately not unfamiliar to many people who've been following uh, this war since the beginning. You know, we've seen military raids on hospitals in northern Gaza, central Gaza, and now Khan Yunus. Uh, what has happened at uh, Nasser Hospital today is that since 2am this morning, the generators have not been working. And according to latest reports, four people have died in ICU from lack of respirators. That kind of humanitarian fallout from military raids is completely foreseeable. It is foreseeable that if you turn off electricity for a hospital, vulnerable people who have no ability to wage an attack against Israeli forces uh, will be at risk. We also know that women giving birth have also had to give birth in incredibly dangerous situations. This is foreseeable. Obviously, the return of bodies of hostages is absolutely a legitimate aim for Israel. But I think weighing up the human cost of uh, going into a hospital in these circumstances uh, versus uh, the possibility of getting the bodies of hostages back, you know, it, it's a very, very... Um, it's, it's a calculation that is extremely costly for Palestinian civilians. Now, over the past two weeks, particularly, the uh, Israelis have been releasing footage of tunnels uh, and they're very sophisticated tunnels. I have to say that before this conflict started, I had no idea uh, in my head when I heard about tunnels. I had, you know, imagined uh, maybe crumbling earth and uh, all of that. That's not how they are. They're very sophisticated. So uh, Hamas have been preparing for some sort of end game for quite a while. So the use of tunnels, again, it's not a new development. They've existed since the 80s and they got increasingly sophisticated, particularly from the early 2000s. Uh, and again, you know, how they operate is very sophisticated. And the one thing I, I would note is that, you know, particularly while uh, Israel, Israel is uh, criticising UN agencies and UNRWA, is that the funneling channels into UN agencies uh, means that there's much more oversight for where the money goes. And what we've seen under Netanyahu's government was uh, the green lighting of funding from Qatar uh, to Hamas outside of UN channels. So what we have is uh, reports of suitcases of money that went into Gaza uh, before the war. Uh, And again, this is exactly the kind of money that Hamas was much more uh, easily able to siphon off for this kind of infrastructure. I think there are real questions uh, when we're talking about, you know, the role of the UN in the Gaza and also Netanyahu's, you know, previous approach to Hamas, where he basically viewed it as uh, desirable in terms of uh, dividing the Gaza Strip from the West Bank, which has a different uh, government, because he understands that a unified Palestinian authority in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank is the basis for a Palestinian state. Um, You've obviously looked at the situation both militarily and politically in Israel. And, you know, all of us are wondering, what is the end game here? I mean, the, the, the Gaza Strip is being destroyed. It's being laid waste. 
So what future is there for anybody living there? There's, there are people who are settlers who say, we want to get back in there. I can't see that being viable. Um, there would be no welcome for Israeli settlers in there, that's for sure. Uh, and yet settlers have sent in you know, some of their children in as you know, a kind of, I think, almost like a kind of propaganda ploy. Uh, and again, the people who around Karim Shalom who are uh, stopping aid going in, again, you know, they are have been allowed to enter a militarised zone. Uh, and I know from uh, journalists who've been there that they're not seeing you know, concerted efforts by Israeli forces to get these people to leave, which again is a sign of what could happen in the Gaza Strip around settlements. Uh, but it's a, it's a relatively small place. So uh, you could imagine that if the population of Palestinians remains there, who many of whom might not have been radicalised before, but are certainly radicalised now after the ferocity of the Israeli onslaught, there would be no safe place for, for settlers. They would have to be like in, in old fashioned stockades protecting themselves. I mean, if you have been to the West Bank and if you've seen where some of the settlements uh, have been placed, I don't think anything would be surprising. For example, if you go to Hebron in the West Bank, it is you know a large Palestinian city, uh, you know, 200,000 people there. And there are a thousand radical settlers in the centre of a city. What does that mean? You have a huge Israeli military force in the centre of a Palestinian city. So, I mean, we I, I don't think anyone would suggest the fact that there is Palestinian opposition to Israeli settlements is necessarily a reason mm. that they would not go ahead, yeah. given the precedent set in the West Bank. Now, there was an extraordinary interview on our breakfast show this morning. Uh, Kira Kelly was interviewing Ghazi Hamad, a Hamas spokesperson, former deputy foreign minister for the government in Gaza. And he was... Uh, asked, first of all, about the prospect of a ceasefire. And uh, he listed a whole pile of things that they wanted, but very little about what they were prepared to to offer in exchange for a ceasefire. But then he was asked about the October 7th uh, attacks. And this is what he had to say. Look, I think that October 7th is part of the resistance. No one can blame the Palestinians for what they did. Because we lived under uh, the occupation 75 years Torture, killing, painful, blood, tears, and no one take care about the Palestinians. Now all the world now they open their eyes and now ask Hamas, what did you did in October seven? And they didn't they didn't ask Israel before that. Why are building settlements? Why you are taking our, our lands? Why you are killing our people? Why you are uh, expanding your settlements? Why you are uh, provoking Al Aqsa Mosque every day? No one uh, take care about the, the, what happened in the Palestinian territories. I think now October 7 created a new history, a new, new page. And I think it is a time now we send a strong message to the world. Now, that's extraordinary, almost as if, as some people were speculating at the beginning of this, that this was a deliberate provocation by Hamas to actually bring, if you like, Palestine to, uh, to world attention and to, to uh, a tipping point. I think they definitely wanted to put the possibility of a Palestinian state back on the agenda. And they have. I mean, there are discussions, you know, in Saudi, in the White House, you know, about, you know, taking irreversible steps for Palestinian statehood. You know, that was not happening before the move was towards normalization, economic development uh, and the sidelining of the project of a Palestinian state. So in that regard, they have succeeded. I would also say the popularity of Hamas in, you know, in the West Bank, you know, where people don't actually have to be subjected to um, their their governing apparatus, you know, has grown. Uh, and I, I would say there are some issues in 
at the Arab language media about how the 7th of October has been reported. So obviously, look, Hamas carried out that attack. I think you know it's not surprising that they're going to stand over it. Uh, and again, what they've also I mean, done... The, the, you have to look at what the Israelis showed us and what they got from body cams of people that they subsequently killed who'd been involved in the October 7th attacks. And the, what, what they did was appalling. And also there were clearly hate crimes because these were not military targets. These were ordinary people. Absolutely. And what I would also say is that some Arab language media has definitely not been uh, upfront about, you know, children being killed. I mean, I've had conversations in the West Bank with people who just, they, they don't accept that children were killed on the 7th of October. And some of that issue isn't in the reporting. Yeah. Uh, but equally, get, the Israelis are not uh, necessarily telling their own people about what everything they're doing in Gaza. Yeah. And again, it's one of these things that, we we want you know a robust media that properly reports on these things is important. Israel has a much more robust media even than than the West Bank or Gaza, where there's not a Palestinian equivalent of Haaretz uh, to do some of this kind of you know hard reporting that will you know lay out what your government is doing. Uh, and I think that is an issue. And I think it's just honestly psychologically, it's extremely hard for I think Palestinians to get their head around the idea that they were not the victims in you know an event. Uh, that took, takes part as part of you know a seven decade long occupation where you know their daily experience is often you know violence and it's hard it's a hard you know some of these things are emotional we have yeah. facts and we obviously have people's emotional responses their daily experience that we are obviously removed from and it's extremely hard sometimes for us to put ourselves in those shoes and you know obviously the role for us is to again be try and be more objective. Um, we've heard again and again that Netanyahu is pursuing this to the bitter end to become, if you like, the hero of the hour uh, to rid Israel of the Hamas threat forever, which of course is not a realistic ambition at all, but also that he's trying to save his own political skin, that if there's any lengthy ceasefire, not just a truce for a few days, but say 45 days, followed by 45 days, followed by 45 days, which was the ingredient of a plan that has now foundered, it would appear, that he would not survive those uh, three by 45 day periods, that he'd be gone. We've been hearing calls for elections as early as June. Uh, Obviously, Netanyahu uh, is facing corruption charges, uh, but he's now the head of a wartime cabinet, which gives him, I guess, a certain amount of protection. But even then, within that war cabinet, it's clear that there are divisions growing. Uh, what we've heard reports of is that uh, Netanyahu has kind of basically stepped back from the hostage negotiations in Cairo. But he did so without telling other members of the war cabinet, including, for example, Benny Gantz, who is the kind of centrist figure mm. in his war cabinet and a possible, you know, So contender. in other words, Netanyahu has said to his negotiators, don't do it. It, it, that's what we've heard. The reports are that he has stepped back and that the focus is on you know the military campaign, and that that is what he's, he is presenting mm. as the best way to get the hostages back. Now, Israel had uh, obviously a fair win behind it with the, the United States, the United Kingdom, the uh, Western countries in the in the EU before all this happened, and indeed after October seventh, absolutely uh, incredible sympathy because again and again in this program we talk about comparing our population to the Israeli population and what would we do if 800 of our citizens were slaughtered in one day you know the emotional reaction right throughout Ireland would be absolutely immense so they had huge global sympathy and then the disproportionate nature of their actions then and subsequently has lost them so much global support Look, absolutely. And again, I, you know, I think people, you know, understand states have to be able to protect themselves. And I think even the recent polling that the Irish Times conducted around uh, Irish support said the majority of people, you know, recognised Israel has a right to defend itself. Uh, 
that said, you know, international law is not this kind of bargain where if you do this, I do 10 times that in response. That's not you know, how international law works. And again, you know, often the Israelis have compared the 7th of October to 9-11. And I would just, you know, highlight, you know, when the US carried out the killing of Osama bin Laden, he lived with 24 other people. And, you know, their legal analysis was that we can't bomb the house where he lives in Pakistan because innocents might die. So they had to go in hand to hand. And three people died as well as Osama bin Laden. Just to give people just a little bit of context of, you know, some of the analysis that is engaged in, you know, armed conflict and these kind of attacks. And there was actually concerns from the legal analysis over that Osama uh, killing about whether they could actually kill him straight out. You know, if he surrendered, would they have to take him alive? Uh, And I think just because of the, the scale of the civilian casualties we've been seeing, I think we've kind of lost sense of what is a normal you know, yeah. civilian rate. I mean, there is a thing called a moral compass and uh, that's where Israel seems to be uh, really drifting away from what it might have stood for. And, and do you think that the way the Palestinians are being treated really as, you know, one Palestinian life is worth only a tiny fraction of a Jewish life? That seems to be the way they, they work it. So the proportionality thing does not impress them. And it just, there is such a parallel with the way many people in Eastern Europe and in uh, Central Europe and Germany and Austria regarded Jewish people as non-people, as people who could be disposed of. And there seems to be something of that in Israeli thinking that Palestinians are people who can be disposed of. I, I, I think just, you know, the language that they often use to describe Palestinians and, uh, and Arabs is really uncomfortable. And I would say, you know, as you know, a white Irish person, you know, when I when my car broke down in the West Bank, the you know, Israelis came to you know help me. Multiple people stopped to help me fix my car. But they're always like, you know, be careful in this area. There's a nearby Arab village. So they are perfectly, you know, able to convey empathy to me, a stranger. But if they knew I was Palestinian, I think it would be a completely different reaction. Uh, and I think something has happened in you know how they have justified the military occupation or refused to acknowledge the reality of that. Uh, again, the, the fact that you know the language of you know terrorism is being used to describe you know too many people uh, in too many situations. Uh, and I think just, you know, the fact mm. that, you know, any... But Hamas don't help their own cause by October 7th. Look, Not at all. Absolutely. And and I think, you know, Hamas also, like how Hamas came into existence and the fact that, you know, Israel initially, at least, you know, viewed it as helpful for uh, sowing uh, divisions within the Palestinian movement to support, you know, an extremist uh, Islamist movement uh, instead of Fatah, which was secular and, you know, moving towards recognising uh, Israel. I think, again, you know, that has to be recognised. Well, it is so complex and the end is uh, not in sight uh, of the conflict. Fundamentally, whether or not we can have some sort of cessation to save lives is a different question and hopefully that one will be resolved. But Hannah McCarthy, a freelance journalist, just back from Israel and heading back soon? Uh, probably next month. All right, Hannah, thank you very much for joining us. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk.